Jesus, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. You've just given us uh, countless wonderful gifts in the last week. We didn't even notice a whole lot of them. And uh, you withdrew your hand of uh, punishment and judgment upon us over the last week also. You showed us mercy. You didn't give us what we deserved. And uh, my only hope today is that you continue that. My only hope is that you'd be the God who, uh, who doesn't change and doesn't change his uh, mind about his promises and what he says he'll do, but he comes through. And that's our only hope too today, God, is that you'd be faithful to your promise, uh, to your covenant, to your grace, to your mercy that you show toward us. So uh, we just want to thank you for that and honour you for that and just pray, Holy Spirit, that you uh, speak through me, that you'd help me to be useful and that you'd help uh, all of our hearts to be soft and receptive and teachable and not hardened. Amen. All right, I've got a quiz to kick off with. What do these three have in common? Anyone got anything? Oh, that's interesting. A lot of hype. I'll tell you this, these three... The one thing that I thought they had in common, and they had a couple of good uh, examples of other things, but the one thing I was primarily thinking about, this is like, guess the correct answer from the teacher is this. They all do away with the need for God. All right? This first guy on the scene is uh, Charles Darwin around about the 1850s. He comes along because the big thing for everyone is, uh, well, where did all this come from? And he comes up with a theory that tells you where it all comes from. And it doesn't include God, generally. Although Christians and you could go right back to Augustine, we're not going into it, but some Christians have postulated that uh, uh, evolution could have been driven by God. All right? But Darwin wasn't really coming from that perspective when he wrote it. I'm in the midst of uh, reading a whole bunch of Freud at the moment, so if you wonder why I'm acting weird, that might be the reason. I might need some psychoanalysis. All right? But, uh, I mean, Freud was probably sympathetic toward religion, but his system that he came up with um, dealt with what was wrong with people. And so when you look at worldview, when you look at the stuff... Uh, that are the critical questions for every single worldview, whether it be a Christian one or a, a non-Christian one, you have to answer, one of the questions you have to answer is where did everything come from? Darwin worked that out in the 1850s. And then uh, Freud was probably the most popular example of someone who came up with a plan to fix what's wrong with people, which is the other one. Um, the other big worldview question is uh, what's wrong with us and how do you fix it? Freud uh, did a fair bit of work and probably uh, became quite popular in, in around about the 1890s in terms of his theories. So, and then you've got the iPhone 5, which gets released in the last week. All right? Now, let me read you something from news.com.au on Friday uh, about the iPhone 5. As of 6.30 a.m. this morning, it was reported that around 50 people were in the Sydney line waiting to buy an iPhone 5 before the shop opened. First in line was 22-year-old Jonathan Rees, who calls himself the ultimate cure. That's a nice identity statement, isn't it? You go, what do you do? Well, I cue. <laughs> I just cue. That's what I do. Uh, he said by the time the uh, phone came out at 8 a.m. this morning, he would have been waiting 10 hours. I didn't sleep much at all, he said. I've been up since 6 a.m. yesterday and here since 10 p.m. last night. Listen to, listen to what he says now. He goes, the true Apple fans don't pre-order. They line up. And then he says this, I'm expecting a lot of happiness and relief once I get the phone. Isn't that interesting? All right? 
So at some level, what this guy's got going is he's got some kind of Apple worship thing going on from his heart and he's actually expecting when he gets the phone, he's going to be happy and relieved and have some kind of peace. Now, the writer of Hebrews has premeditated all of this stuff. He, he predated all of this stuff. You might have noticed in the scripture that was read out that uh, the writer of Hebrews says everything's being built by God. And there's some really, really good scientific evidence that shows that, that everything is being built by a designer. One of the arguments is called the teleological argument. And he also goes on to talk about what's wrong with people. And what's wrong with people, according to the writer of Hebrews, is that they've actually got a problem with their heart. There's this haunting line in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, in verse 10 there, where the uh, writer says, he actually quotes Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, he says, they always go astray in their heart. And if you, if you actually pause and just meditate on that, it is haunting. It's, it's, it's almost got that sense that there's this forlorn, uh, disappointed God who has done so many things for his people, but there's this mechanism inside of people. They always tend to just go astray, and it always happens at a heart level. So today I just want to talk briefly about what we understand to be the heart and what God's done about the heart to help you. You see, the heart, according to the Bible, is the inner self that thinks, feels, and decides. It loves, it hates, it experiences joy and sorrow, courage and fear come from the heart, peace and bitterness come from the heart also. But the heart is also, biblically, the, uh, the thing that thinks. The heart is connected to the mind. The heart is the thing that imagines, it understands, it can speak to itself. Decision-making is actually carried out by the heart. The, act of the acts of the will are all acts of the heart according to the Bible. But you know, ultimately another thing that the Bible actually says about the heart is that it's actually the source of character and personality. It's a source of purity or evil. It can be a source of sincerity and I guess this category of the heart biblically is probably the most telling one. It can be the source of sincerity and softness or incredible hardness and stubbornness. You see, according to the Bible, the heart describes the true character of individuals and it's almost like this catch-all phrase that that can bring together uh, all of the stuff that I've talked about into one kind of idea that there's a central thing in your being that's 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 doing all of the things that I've just mentioned and God appeals to to people and he says love me with all of your heart which is going to involve the emotions the mind and and all those other things I talked about. And on top of that, you've actually got other things that impinge upon the heart. So we actually think at the project here that, that biology can affect the heart, can't it? And we actually think uh, at the project here that people are socially embedded. And the Bible recognises that people are socially embedded. And where they're socially embedded actually affects their heart and it affects them. The scary thing is the Bible has some very, very harsh things to say, I guess, about the heart and the nature of the human heart in the natural. It answers this question, what is inside the human heart? Now, you could do a biological test, you could cut open a heart, you could find out what's inside the human heart, but that's a physical heart. And like the physical heart is the centre of the body in terms of pumping the blood around and the lifeblood of the, the person around. So the, the heart of a person in a spiritual sense is the centre of that person. One of my boys this morning asked me where his heart was and I said, well, it's right there. And in one sense that's true. But the Bible is very clear about the fact that there's a heart that is so much more significant than the physical heart. 
Because the heart that goes on, when the physical heart dies, the spiritual heart that goes on is the critical one. It's a really disappointing scripture, this one, for human beings in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's, it's kind of sad, isn't it? And it's, it's sad because you, you actually don't know your own heart. And this is the weird thing. Most human beings sit there and we think, yeah, I understand myself pretty well. You don't. This is what the scripture is saying. It's saying, who knows it? Now, it answers the question. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I'm not going to preach about it today, but the next message I preach in Hebrews, and this is what the author of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 3, is it starts, he starts talking about the deceitfulness of sin. Because the heart's deceitful. And uh, I've been reading uh, on Friday, I read through a whole bunch of uh, self-defense mechanisms that Freud came up with, and then five self-exoneration mechanisms that uh, I think it was Bandura, the behavioral therapist, came up with to try and show that people are out there trying to protect themselves. But at the end of the day, you know what they are? They're self-deception mechanisms. They're actually things that we do to stop the true us from being seen. And this is exactly what Jeremiah 17 says. That's, that's what people are like. We, our hearts are deceitful. We don't understand ourselves well. And at the end of the day, what's critical in hearts, and this is what I'll go on to discuss with you uh, over the next, uh, next 10 or 15 minutes, is that uh, it's actually what rules the heart that's really, really critical. And on the light of this, I want to show you a clip from Kung Fu Panda. All right? You don't really need to know that much about the movie. If you've seen it, it might help a little bit. But here's the bottom line. There's a good guy and he's a fat panda, all right? And there's a bad guy and his name's Tai Lung, all right? And his, his deal is that he wanted to get the dragon scroll up the top and he couldn't get it. Anyway, there's this discussion that goes on between all these kung fu uh, fighters about why Tai Lung couldn't actually... Uh, he wasn't given the opportunity to get the, uh, the dragon scroll. Anyway, here we go. Before what? Before Tai Lung. Uh, yeah, we're not really supposed to talk about him. Well, if he's going to stay here, he should know. Guys, guys, I know about Tai Lung. He was a student, the first ever to master the thousand scrolls of Kung Fu. And then he turned bad and now he's in jail. He wasn't just a student. Shifu found him as a cub. And he raised him as a son. And when the boy showed talent in Kung Fu, Shifu trained him. He believed in him. He told him he was destined for greatness. It was never enough for Thailand. He wanted the Dragon Scroll, but Ugwe saw darkness in his heart and refused. Outraged, Tai Lung laid waste to the valley. At that point, you always have a couple of kids going, oh, it was good. This sermon was going really well. <laughs> All right. You notice there that uh, even in uh, Kung Fu Panda, you can see there that the commentary there is that uh, Tai Lung was actually ruled by his desire to get the dragon scroll. And what that meant is that people got trashed and bad things happened. And you can see uh, the final comment there, uh, is that uh, Tai Long, Tai Lung, I should say, 
Tai Long. I always used to think it was Tai Long, L-O-N, but it's Tai Lung. I don't know, the thing you breathe with. Anyway, <laughs> the commentary there is uh, he had darkness in his heart. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if, if you really wanted to push it in the biblical sense, you'd say the darkness in his heart was because he was ruled by the thing that he wanted. That's where the darkness actually came from. And that's, honestly, that's our problem. This is something that I, uh, I talk, with, talk with my sons about all the time. This is what I talk with students at school about all the time, is that when you're ruled by something that's not Jesus, it always ends up in other people getting hurt and you getting hurt. It just always does. And it ends up in God getting hurt as well because it all comes back to a hard issue. So I just want to revisit it. If you've got Bibles, that's going to be really handy for you. If you can crack it open at um, Hebrews chapter 3. Um, one thing you actually notice in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, if you do a little bit of research on it, and uh, sometimes you might actually have a footnote that might show this, is the uh, scripture in Hebrews 3 about not hardening your hearts, that um, poetic-looking scripture uh, in Hebrews 3, actually comes from Psalm 95. And if you go right back to... Uh, Psalm 95, you actually work out that the day that was testing, the day of rebellion that it's actually talking about, uh, was two separate occasions, it would seem, at uh, places called Meribah and Massa. The first one, and you can write this down and have a read of this later, is Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 to 7. And the second one is Numbers 20, verse 2 to 13. And what it is, is uh, Moses has got around about 2 million people, all right? So if you think your kids can really nag you and annoy you and keep asking you for the same thing all the time, imagine having two million people and they've run out of water. There's no water. All right? So what are we going to do? Well, obviously what the people actually do is they complain against Moses. They complain against Moses the first time that they come to this place called uh, Meribah and Massa. And when they complain against Moses, they basically accuse Moses of bringing them out there to die. And they grumble and they actually event ultimately accuse God of not being caring. There's a real hard issue going on for them. But the second time is probably even more interesting. The first time God says to Moses, go up, hit the rock with your staff and water's going to come out of the rock. So he goes up, hits the rock with the staff and the water comes out. Second one is really fascinating and the second one has a little bit a similarity to this particular picture here, all right? Have you ever had a situation in your life where no one's got control? You've walked into it, everyone's out of control. You know, you walk into it and you think, my boss is going to be okay because he's the one, when everyone else loses it, he's the one who's not meant to have lost it. You get in there, he's lost it, all right? You get home maybe and you just go, everything's okay, right? It's dad's job. Dad's got to be the last one that doesn't lose it. You get home, the kids are going off, mum's going off, and dad's going off. All right? This is kind of what we've got going on in Numbers chapter 20. You've got a situation where Moses, the guy who's at the top uh, of uh, the, the ladder in terms of the Jews, he's the champ. He's the guy who's meant to get it all right. You've got this situation where Moses, who is so often the guy that doesn't fall, he's the last one that doesn't fall, and he holds a standard up there, you've got a situation in Numbers 20 where he loses it. And everyone's, everyone's gone. It's like we've got the Simpsons going on in Numbers chapter 20. Everyone's got each other by the throat. The people are complaining against Moses. They're complaining against God. Moses is complaining to God. So God says to Moses, he says, go out there. And he says, and I want you to speak to the rock and tell water to come out of the rock. You know what he does? 
He goes out and he grabs his staff and he hits the rock. Interesting. All right? This is how you did it last time. I'm really cranky and this is going to be therapeutic. So I'm going to hit the rock with my stick. All right? I always used to joke about how the first year of uh, teaching, uh, the people I live with had a uh, private squash court. And I just thought, man, there's nothing more brutal and to get the aggression out there and to hit a squash ball in a court for a while and then go home and play the drums and hit something else, all right? So you can get this kind of vibe with Moses. Like he's just going, I just can't do this anymore. And I'm sick of this. These people are driving me nuts. And you know what? They probably were. Two million complaining people would be difficult, wouldn't it? So he's angry and he's frustrated and he's frustrated with God. And so what you've got is you've got this situation where the people want something, they're being ruled by that. Moses wants something, he's being ruled by that and no one's getting it right. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is referring to when he's saying the problem is it's a heart problem. The problem is that people have actually become dominated by the things that they want and it's hurting people. And you know what ends up happening in Numbers chapter 20 is that God actually says to Moses, he says, because you did that, you don't get to go into the promised land. Now, on the surface, that seems a bit harsh. He's had a tough gig. And it is true that the Bible often speaks about the fact that God will forgive people and he'll give grace and mercy. But you don't ever want to say anyone that God, say, sorry, you don't ever want to say to someone that God always, every single time, gives people a second chance. Will he forgive them? Yes, he will. Will he be gracious to them? Yes, he will. Will he be merciful? Of course he will. God always does that. You don't always get to go back to the thing that he called you to if you get it wrong. You've got to honour God in that. It's his right to decide what's appropriate. And it does seem harsh. And I look and I just think, man, if I was God, I'd be merciful toward Moses. I'd be a terrible God. All right? And this is, I think as soon as you start to do that in your head, as soon as you start to think, if I was God, I'd do it differently, you'd become God's judge. Because that's exactly what the people were doing in Numbers 20. Is they were saying, God, I would do this differently if I were you. Well, he can do it however he wants, can't he? And he promises that he loves people and he cares for you, but he'll do it his way and it'll be best for you. Because he promises it always will be. What's interesting is we see uh, from Jesus in Luke 6 verse 45, he makes this comment, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So when people come and they start complaining and they start grumbling, there's a good chance that there's something that someone wants that's actually in charge and ruling their heart. So parents, you've got to be smart about this, all right? A whinge and a complaint and a grumble is not just a whinge and a complaint and a grumble, it's something that's proceeding out of the heart. And if you work with children, and even if you just work with each other, I mean, let's be honest, there's probably times where we all complain and grumble. And it's one thing, I guess uh, if, if you go back a number of months, I would have thought, oh, I don't think grumbling is that bad, but I think it can be really bad because it's actually a hard expression that's a problem there. So I just want to quickly ask the question, why do we grumble? Well, you know, one reason why we grumble is because I think at, at the core we actually want a life that doesn't have obstacles. It shouldn't get in my way. The Israelites are out there and they're walking around. It's pretty hot, dusty, dirty. Probably don't have showers every day. They're certainly not running water as far as we know. We're not meant to run out of water. But what's God doing? He's, he's testing them because he wants to change them and shape them and mould them. 
This is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. At this end, we kind of think, I don't want any obstacles. At this end, God's saying, I'm bringing obstacles because it's going to complete you. The second thing is that uh, we actually begin to believe the lie that we can find life outside of God and we get frustrated when we don't. We actually think the thing that's going to help us and the, the thing that we want is actually going to be the thing that's going to get us through. It's going to be the thing that we ultimately need to survive life. And the Israelites thought this, all right? And the reason why I'm telling you this about the Israelites is because don't be that guy, all right? Don't be like them, okay? Don't find something that you want and then depend upon that for life. That's what the Israelites were doing with water. And, man, you'd be pretty sympathetic to say, look, if you don't get water, it's going to be the end. You're going to die. But do you really think that God's going to bring two million people out into the wilderness and leave them to die first? I don't think so. The third thing I'll just throw out your way about why I think uh, the Israelites are grumbling and why I think we have a tendency to grumble is because we actually desire a life without any need to trust in God. See, God made human beings dependent upon him at the beginning. And so it's entirely appropriate for you to be dependent. Not just appropriate, that's how you're made. It's one thing I've been saying with classes at school, could I hammer a nail in with an iPhone? And the answer is yes, you could, couldn't you? But you'd probably break the iPhone because the iPhone wasn't made to do that. Can a human being be independent and not trust in God? Yes, they can, but they'll break. All right, because they weren't made to do that. What they were made to do is to depend upon God and to trust in God. You see, God regularly takes us beyond our own resources and strength to learn that his grace is sufficient. And I think if you've been a Christian for longer than 10 seconds, you probably know that. All right? That's what it is. You get taken to places that you just can't handle on your own. And what God's trying to do is he's just saying, here's what we're doing here, Peter. Who's going to teach you how to trust me? He's going, I thought I learned that six months ago. Yes, I know, but we're just going to get it stronger. All right? We're going to put you on the bench press. We're going to put another 40 kilos on the bar and we'll see how you go with it. All right, and I'm going to help you with it. I'm going to help you to get stronger. And then in 10 years' time, people are going to go, man, that's incredible faith in that guy. And why is it incredible faith? Because God kept putting 20 kilos, 40 kilos on the bar. All right? That's really good because that was, that's what God does. That's what he's teaching us. You see, the Israelites didn't just have a natural desire for water. They wanted water and they wanted it on their own terms. And they actually believed that God wasn't going to provide it for them. And then, because God didn't provide it on their terms, they questioned his character. They thought he'd just brought them out there to kill them. You see, the Israelites in the wilderness actually put their own desires at the centre of the universe and they demanded that God, Moses and the wilderness actually revolve around them. But you know, the bottom line out of all of that is human desire actually can't be satisfied. You can, when, you, when you once actually take charge of your heart, the God or the thing that you're after that you're trying to get actually won't get it done for you. David Powlison said this. He said, grumbling is being dissatisfied with what is. Paul Tripp said that grumbling is the background drone of a discontented heart. In other words, whatever my present situation holds is not what I want, so I grumble and I grasp and I try to get my hands on it. It's all a bit, we're trying to be hopeful actually in this little season of the project, so we're getting there, all right? So don't just go, ah, oh, here they go again, all right? 
It's, it gets good, right? Because here's the thing. You just need to know that you've got a big problem, all right? I could stand up and tell you what God's solution is all the time, but if you don't understand what your problem is, it doesn't really help you that much because you think, oh, I, it's optional, all right? I could take that if I want, but I don't have to. And the reason why I'm going through all this is because you're in a bad place and I'm in a bad place and this is not an optional thing. We actually need the remedy that God provides. See, we've actually got a heart that's totally messed up. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's depressing, all right? Now, I could stand up here and I could say, human beings don't want God. They don't seek after God. They don't even like Him. But you know what the weird thing is? That is kind of true, but it's also true that human beings love beauty, don't they? And humans actually love transcendent things. They actually want something that's bigger than them at a heart level. You see, human beings learn, yearn for justice. They, they search for wisdom. They're impressed by antiquity. They, they need hope. They sense darkness. They're appalled by evil. They're repulsed by death. And they ache for a the reassurance of a story that makes sense of their existence. You see, all of those things are reflections of the fact that human beings at some level actually are seeking for God. And I think it was Augustine that said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And it's true, isn't it, that humans have got restless hearts. I mean, Romans chapter 3 is true, isn't it, that no one seeks after God. And that's the weird thing is, is we've got restless hearts, but... We don't actually want to look in the right place a lot of the time, do we? And I think that's what Romans is kind of saying a little bit there is human beings don't want to look where the answer is, but they want the answer. And it's this weird mechanism that's going on there. See, we're like a seagull supporter who could support anyone else and be happy. Any seagull supporters? Well, we're not. We're, we're like the, the man who's been drinking salt water because... He's thirsty and it makes him insane and he doesn't stop drinking it. He keeps drinking the salt water. Is, is he, in a sense, is he looking for God? Absolutely. Is, is the woman looking for God? He's drinking the salt water. Yeah, she's looking for God. Yeah, she's got a heart problem. And maybe even sometimes I think people know there's a remedy but they actually don't want to go where the remedy is. We've got a problem. But here the hope. This is where it all gets good. Here the hope. I mean, the writer of Hebrews, he uses this word today, doesn't he? You sense the hope in the word today? It's like, have you ever had someone come up to you and just go, man, seriously, you could have won $10,000, but you just didn't put it in, so it's too late. So there's no hope in that, is there? It's like, man, you know this situation, uh, this actually could have been way different if you just did this. But it's too late. It's like there's no hope in that. And it's the whole thing, you know, people go, I'm not going to say I told you so, and then they do say I told you so, all right? And it's almost like the I told you so thing is, it's not a today thing, it's a yesterday. You should have done something different yesterday. With the benefit of hindsight, it would have been so much different. It's hopeless. And correspondingly, you could say, man, probably if you wait another three years, something really good might happen. You know, like future's not, it can be hopeful, right? Because you can look forward to what's happening. But it's not as filled with hope as the word today, is it? You get that? Today. And the writer of Hebrews wants you to get that. 
that today there's a huge opportunity. All right? And in terms of what he's saying, today has been going since right back at the Israelites, I think right back to the first sin in Genesis chapter 3, it's been today. It's, it's today. There's a chance today. And he, and he uses this word quite a bit. He says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And this is what God would say to all of us here today. He says, today, there's a chance. Today. And Sunday, today is today. And there's a chance right now. And this moment is today. And you, don't harden your hearts. This is what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying. Don't do it. Don't get callous. Don't grow a, a layer of dead skin over your heart. Keep it soft and keep it alive. Don't harden it today. Do it today. Take advantage of it today. And in verse 13, but exhort one another, encourage, encourage each other every day, as long as it is called what? Today. He's saying it's still today. And I'll be preaching on this in a few weeks' time, but that's why you should encourage each other, because it's today. And when you encourage each other, you help each other to stay soft and to have a genuine, living, soft, human heart and not a heart of stone. It's filled with hope. It's today. It's not too late. And some of you might be thinking, I've been away from God for a while maybe. It's still today. It's not too late. There's a chance today. So repent. Get a soft heart. Repent and do what God asked you to do. And you think, oh, maybe a while ago I blew it and I still haven't got over it. I haven't forgiven myself. Well, just, it's still today. There's still hope. And there's still a chance today. In verse 15, the writer uses it again. He says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, since therefore it remains for some to enter God's rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. What? Today. He's kind of going, look in the past. There's a whole bunch of dodgy stuff that happened and it wasn't helpful, but it's still today. There's still a chance for you. And it's not just a chance, it's a certainty. If you soften your heart and you repent and you turn to God, it's today and you'll get mercy and you'll get forgiveness. Let me tell you something else that is absolutely unbelievable about today. And this is different to what it was in the Old Testament. It's that God now, post-Jesus, offers to give people a new heart. That is one heck of a today. That's today. That's the last 2,000 years since Jesus. This new covenant's come into place, this new deal, this new promise where God says, I'm going to take away this inclination in your heart that tends to drag people away from God, that makes people go astray in their hearts all of the time. I'm going to deal with that. Here's a couple of prophecies in Ezekiel. And I'll give them one heart. And a new spirit I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I'll be their God. And again in Ezekiel 20, uh, 36, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. Just hear the tenderness of God here. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I'll cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to work 
walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, God knows the problem at the start was an inside job. That's what the problem was. People always go astray in their hearts. So the remedy's got to be an inside job too. And God gets the inside job done by restoring and renewing your heart. And I can say from uh, my life without any shadow of a doubt that in the darkest moments for me when I uh, didn't even, when I doubted God's existence so incredibly strongly, there was this inclination and this impulse inside of me that did exactly what Ezekiel was talking about that kept drawing me back to God. And you've got to listen to that. Listening to that, that's, that's softness of heart. And see, anyone who's been a Christian would probably know that they've had times where they've drifted badly, but there's this impulse, there's this, there's this desire, there's this heart's desire that would actually want to draw back to God and be close again. And that's because God's given you a new heart. That's your new inclination. Your inclination now is not to go astray. That's not the main inclination. That's not going to be the one that's going to win. The one that's going to win is the inclination that wants to draw back to God. I want to show you a video. It goes for about four and a half minutes and uh, then we'll be done. I'll make a couple of comments at the end of it and we'll be done. This uh, was a story I've spliced a few of the scenes together uh, from uh, 60 Minutes and uh, I think you'll see the, uh, the significance of the video as we watch it but it's basically this story about this a uh, young boy who I think went over to Greece and he got bashed and he, he literally, his parents had to turn off the uh, life support. And at the same time that that's happening, there's this other guy who's got heart disease and his doctors have told him that he's going to die if he doesn't get a new heart. Um, I'll uh, roll the vid and uh, make a couple of comments. I remember when I first heard about young Dujon Zamet. Like you, I thought, what a waste, what a dreadful waste. He was just 20 years old. There he was one moment having the holiday of his life on the Greek island of Mykonos. The next, he was being bashed senseless by a nightclub bouncer. And then came that terrible decision for his parents to turn off his life support system. But despite their grief, the Zamets were certain of one thing, their son would not be forgotten, and he won't be. Tonight, an emotional journey as Oliver and Rosemary Zamet go back to Greece and meet the people Dujon saved. As night falls over Athens, two families meet. Strangers from across the world, now linked forever by a powerful bond. I think he chose you. You look very good. I am. I'm glad. I am. In their darkest hour, Rosemary and Oliver Zamet gave Costas Gribulus the gift of life. Inside Costas' chest beats the heart of their murdered son, Dujon. At the same time, across the Aegean Sea in Athens, doctors were telling 31-year-old Costas Gribulus he was dying. The doctor said to me that your heart is not good, it's not well, it's not healthy. Costas, a journalist, was born in Australia but came to Greece 20 years ago. Late last year, he was struck down with cardiomyopathy, a fatal viral heart condition. To live, doctors said, 
he needed a transplant. You knew for you to live, somebody had to die. Oh. Yes, unfortunately. That's a really difficult thing, I know. That's the hardest chapter in this book of my life. For me, the um, Zamet family is my family too. You feel that way? Yes. It's only 25, 26 days, but I feel them as a family. I haven't seen them, I haven't spoken with them, but I feel really, really, really close with them. This is the moment the Zamet family has been so desperately wanting. I, I think he chose you. You look very good. I am. I'm glad. I am. It's bittersweet. Utter sadness at the loss of their son. Joy that his passing has saved others. Too, I thank you, and I'm really, really, really sorry about your loss. But um, I'm glad that I'm fine now, and this is the first time that I'm touching my heart, my chest. Really? The first time. I'm so glad that out of Dujon's passing, he saved four people and helped four people, and that's the best thing that's come out of this tragedy. So I'm so glad that you received his heart, Costa. Me too. I know that's really hard for you. Really, really hard. I know that there's no words that you can describe it. But the only thing that I can do is promise you that I'm going to look after it. I'm sure you will. It's an amazing story, isn't it? I wonder if you noticed comments that were made in the, the parallel to Christ. The son Dujon was bashed senseless. Word says that uh, Jesus would be beaten up so much people wouldn't be able to recognise him. The parents made the decision to turn off the life support, they said in the story. In one sense, that's what Jesus' father did, didn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the, the mother of Dujon crying says, I think he chose you. And didn't Jesus say that in uh, John? He said, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now go and bear fruit. Made the comment in the story there, inside Costa's chest beats the heart of their murdered son. That couldn't be any more true regarding Jesus. Isn't that right? In the sense that Jesus gets beaten up, he gets bashed and he gets murdered, the life support gets turned off and you get his pure heart. And the doctor's saying to uh, Costa, your heart's not good. It's not well, it's not healthy. That's what God, in a sense, says to us. He says, it's not good, you need some help. You need a new heart because your heart has got a fatal heart condition 
To live, this is another thing they said, to live, you need a heart transplant. And then that line there, at the interviewer asked Costa, she says, you, you know that for you to live, somebody had to die. It's exactly what happens with Jesus. And that's exactly the situation for us. It's for us to live, for us to have a healthy heart. There's no medicine, there's no medication, there's no tablet. It's a transplant. We're in a situation where a transplant's required. You don't get someone's he- someone else's heart unless they sacrifice it and they give it up. That's exactly what Jesus did. And so I just encourage you today, and I'll, I'll just end with this. You could be like Costa. What he said right at the end. You remember what he said? He said, I promise you, I'm going to look after it. See, it was a huge cost for you, for Jesus, sorry, to give you the heart that you've got. See, so don't, don't be silly with it. I'm not saying you are being silly, but you just don't be silly with something that costs so much. And that's what Costa felt at a heart level there um, when he was talking to the parents of, of the murdered son. It's like, I got something really precious and I'm going to make sure that I don't take it for granted. I'll leave you with Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, you are truly our only hope. And I thank you that you diagnose our condition properly. You're a good physician. You're a good soul physician, a good soul doctor. You say, here's your problem. Here's your problem, Peter. Here's your problem, everyone at the project today. You've got this instinct inside of you in the flesh that would just drift, that would just go astray in your heart. But I've dealt with all of that. And Lord, I, I thank you so much for the new covenant. I thank you for the new heart. All of those who love you and who are part of your family have a new heart. And so the instinct and the impulse is different now. God, and I pray that you'd help us to be on our guard. And I pray that you'd help us to to guard our hearts well. I pray that you'd help us to see times where uh, the deceptive side of our heart just uh, is rearing its ugly head. I pray that you'd draw us back to yourself. Please keep us healthy. Please keep our hearts healthy. Amen.